Disclosure. Nothing said on the hive mind is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. The podcast is strictly for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Jose, Jan, Duncan, Ceteris, and our guests may advise or hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Delphi's transparency page can be viewed in the description. Now on to our show. Hey everyone, my name is Jose Macedo and welcome to the Hive Mind podcast. The goal of the podcast is to provide an inside look into what we like to call the Delphi Hive Mind, bringing together some of our brightest minds from each of the divisions to share insights, alpha, and some shit posts. Today with us we have Ceteris Paribus, who refer to as Ceteris from our institutional research arm, who focuses on blockchain infrastructure and DeFi. We have Jan Lieberman, managing partner of Delphi Ventures, and Ventures Associate Duncan, also known as Flood Capital on Twitter, prodigious shitcoin scavenger and investor. I lead Delphi Labs, our protocol R&D arm, focused on incubating and accelerating new Web3 primitives. It's been a hectic week in crypto, and we're going to be digging into the curve stuff, discussing what this means for AMMs. So let's start with the curve war. So a quick summary, I think we'll go chronologically from the beginning of this. Obviously, most people have, have been focused on this week, but this actually has like a pretty rich history. So going all the way back, August 2020, the Curve token was deployed. October 2020, a few months later, the Curve team made a proposal to add Curve as collateral to Aave v2, which actually passed as the first Aave v2 governance proposal. And by December, Michael was already levering up against this Curve on Aave. And the debt pretty much kept going up over time. Throughout 2021, he kept borrowing. And then in August 2022, the Oracle risk was first identified. I think the first report on it was, was Vault Capital. Shout out One True Kirk, who did some great coverage on this. And then within a few months, Avi Eisenberg, the infamous Avi Eisenberg, had exploited Mango using uh, the same sort of, sort of Oracle manipulation attack. And then in November, he tried the same thing on Ave. At the time, Michael released the Curve stablecoin white paper and kind of avoided calamity. They only contracted about $2 million in bad debt, which was covered from Treasury. And then later, Avi went to, you know, got arrested and, and things looked like they were okay. Until December 2022, January 2023, the risk parameters on Aave were updated. They reduced the Curve LTV, made it unborrowable. And Gauntlet also warned about the high Curve concentration and suggested further reductions. Later, six months later, June 2023, Gauntlet proposed to freeze Curve collateral and set the LTV to zero. This was rejected by governance. So Michael continued to borrow, but he shifted a lot of that to other platforms like Frax, Magic Internet Money, Abracadabra, and Inverse. And so this brings us to this week, starting, I guess, August 1st, July 31st. And I think, Jan, you want to you wanna take it from here, cover what happened this week? Yeah, absolutely. So he, he's sitting on 47% at the time of circulating supply that he's borrowed against as collateral. And now you have this scenario where there's a hack. And, and, and so you kind of have this, this domino effect. Initially, you know, the concern is, what happens with the stolen curve that he can dump on the market. Then more secondary, you have, you know, a lot of the AUM off of the exchange itself is, is, is stolen. So there's a, a loss in fundamental value to the token. And then also you have the, the confidence loss. And, and so all of that kind of together sets off this, this 
this domino effect that that you know we're all too familiar with now in, in crypto and and so you know you had it with luna you had it with ftx and 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 these issues create a massive loss of confidence and and so as a result you have all these lending protocols go into pvp mode where ave has the largest bag but frax and and abracadabra are a bit more nimble and so what ends up happening there is they start charging massive interest rates based on, uh, or rather they start increasing the interest rate that he has to pay based on, on the level of utilization that exists in that pool. And, and those rates will only grow as the utilization stays elevated. And so now you have this ticking time bomb where, you know, everyone is, is afraid of, of what would happen if, if he doesn't have the liquidity to repay. And you have a lot of this forced selling and kind of the knock-on effects across the space. And you know, initially, I think the, the fears were really warranted, but I think if you kind of look a bit deeper, it ended up being a bit overblown. And we, and we had, you know, some kind of, we had varying opinions across the space as a nothing burger. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so yeah, I think, you know, if you think about it, it's that, that domino meme where the first one falls and the last one is, is like is the damage. And, and I think the, the major distinction that has to be made is the size of the, as a relative size of the immediate liability relative to that next domino, right? And so if you look at previous examples with like Luna and NFTX, that immediate liability that had to be satisfied was gargantuan. And, and it was not that much different than like the next liability. Whereas here, you know, you have this this immediate liability that's that's not small, but it's not that large. Whereas the the larger liability, you know, everyone is is talking about is DeFi in trouble? What happens if if kind of curve goes to zero? You have a lot of these protocols that have accumulated large bags of of, of CRV, and and you know, to a varying degree, a lot of their value proposition was based upon the future value of curve and and being able to kind of direct these emissions, and so. It, it really boiled down to the immediate liability relative to the liability that needed to be avoided, which was the massive downfall of curve. And, and so that's, yeah. Well, even um, more like, I guess, like zooming in, like what actually, so the hack happened, curve I think dropped from like 70 cents to 60 cents. And then people started talking about obviously this massive borrow position, 48% of the circulating supply borrowed across like, you know, four different lending platforms. And what like really triggered people's fears because his liquidation was around, you know, 35 cents was that like Frax Land had a, a fixed kind of a system where the interest rate would adjust as people withdraw borrow from, from the pool. So like as the pool capacity drops, then the Frax interest rate goes up and it goes up uh, like exponentially basically. So what happened is like the Frax rate went from like 10% to like 130% kind of in one day and Air in 24 hours, and that was going to continue to step up all the way to 10,000%, which would have basically liquidated the founder's collateral on Frax. Then probably like the fear was a cascading liquidation. Yeah, in, in like three or four days. Yeah, and it would yeah. like be increasing the bad debt for the protocol too. Like yeah, so, so that borrow, that like one position would have kind of triggered a liquidation of that curve collateral, which then could have spiraled to the bigger lending markets like like Ave, right? So that was kind of the trigger and a bunch of people were freaking out. But really, in order to like not have that interest rate go up, 
it only would take a few million dollars worth of collateral to kind of like free up the pool, right? He'd only borrowed 17 million on Frax. And so, you know, I like once he once he could pay that off, then like the immediate pressure of like that cascading liquidation faded pretty quickly and curve, you know, bounced from 50 cents to 60 cents as soon as he started paying off that that loan and kind of a lot of like the fear mongering. I feel like as Yandra was mentioning, where it could spiral, like if there, if Frax went under, then MIM and Inverse and potentially Aave, there could be like, you know, effects across all all of DeFi. But that was the real trigger. And, you know, as Yandra was saying, like compared to something with Luna, where that was on the scale of billions of dollars, this was on the scale of like a few million. And the amount of kind of protocol value that could be lost across, you know, Aave, Curve, Convex, Spell, Frax, you know, is probably closer to the billions of dollars of, of equity value that could be put at risk. So, you know, thinking that like the the plunge protection team between all of these protocols wasn't going to come together and pay off a few million dollars to stop this interest rate from ramping up exponentially, I thought was like pretty pretty clear. But obviously, you know, people were freaking out. <clears throat> yeah, I think the main. Well, I was going to say like, like the main has, risk you have just. Sorry, like the main. Yeah, I know you have an opposing view on this. I just wanted to go through the. <laughs> I just wanted to go like, what, do you guys want to talk about before you give your opposing view? Like, what would have happened if if Ave actually got liquidated? Like some of these, some of this bad debt. Yeah. Stuff could, go ahead. I mean, so the real risk, like this, would have been fairly contained regardless. But when you're looking through the worst case scenarios, like who's going to be holding the bag at the end? And it would have been Ave because they would have been the last to liquidate. He could have keep moving like his collateral there, paying off the loans of the other protocols that like interest rate was increasing quicker. And then why the Ave situation was a bit scary is because their safety module is essentially all denominated in Ave. And so there's some there was, there. I I think there's like 20 million bucks of, of ETH in there or something. Yeah, but it's in a balanced liquidity pool. So that that value actually declines as people try to front run this. And you kind of see like when, when equity is your only backstop, people will front run that pretty quickly. So you can't like assume that, you know, there's 300 million there, 30% they would use in a shortfall. So that's like 90 mil, but... Like we know how these are like hundred ball assets and it's pretty easy to see a scenario where, you know, Ave actually does get stick, stuck with some bad debt and then people kind of like front run that and Ave has to deal with it. But even in that scenario, like it still would have been contained to Ave in a sense. Like the reason I didn't huge, think there was going to be yeah. like a lot of bad debt to Ave was, you know, if it just back of the envelope, Matt, the effective price he needed was 20 cents. Right. And that means you're selling from 40 down to 20. So you can, your average price you go over the be, back of the envelope, Matt's like just, yeah, just, I think we should clarify the borrow because yeah. we didn't talk about the amount. So basically we said 48% of the circulating supply, that was around 400 million curve. Let's say, so after the hack, you know, people were panicked. Curve dropped from 70 cents to 60 cents. So at 60 cents, 400 million curve is around $240 million. And his total borrow across all these lending markets was around like 85 million. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah, take it away. So if, yeah, if you're thinking about like the effective price you need for for every curve you sell at 40 cents, you, you can sell one curve at a cent, right? And then you're, you're getting that effective 20 cents. So even if it cascaded all the way down, you had plenty of people that were setting up with stink bids where 
like I, I, I just don't see a scenario where there was even going to be bad debt because I think you also have kind of the the opportunistic bidders in, in the Justin Suns who have their own stable coin and 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 you know see the value of, of owning this curve to 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 kind of increase the liquidity of their can protocol. You, can you explain and, the bad debt thing though? Like, what's the right? Yeah, because I, I don't think everyone will, will will follow that. Like the collateral amount and then like why twenty cents is the price. Right. So so bad debt is basically when you when the final effective value of your collateral, right? And that's why the a very important factor of collateral is its liquidity. In in the scenario where you need to do a fire sale of the collateral, the bad bad debt is basically the the scenario where the amount of resulting stables you have from selling the collateral is less than the liability that the individual owes. So as long as you can sell the collateral for at least what the value of the liability is, there there is no bad debt. And and when you can't, that's that's what leads to bad debt, which is absorbed by the protocols themselves which is why you kind of saw this PVP scenario among the lending markets to be, you always want to be the first one to panic. And so if they can kind of move the debt onto someone else's books, they don't have the risk of, of that scenario. And the maths, like the, the 20 cents? Yes. Yeah, so, so 400 million point to his 80 and his borrow was around 85 million. So, so that was around his, his average that he needed to get out at. So he had quite a bit of buffer room. But like I said, like like the PVP that started to kick off. So obviously, you know, I was speaking about Prax before. That interest rate started to increase exponentially. And then there is kind of reports from another smaller lending protocol relative to Aave, like Abracadabra, who has their own stable coin. They basically, someone posted a proposal on their forum where they said, like, we need to get out of this. And we're basically suggesting they crank up the interest rate to, I think, at the current like level of debt and utilization, everything would have been off the bat a thousand percent. So obviously, you know, you have Frax increasing the interest rate and then MIM says like, fuck, if this is like, we need to protect our stable coin holders, we're going to go increase the interest rate. And then obviously there was now Aave's worried about him basically refining his, his Frax and Abracadabra loans on Aave because Aave has, has a lower rate. And so it basically gets very PVP between the different lending protocols and like, especially the smaller ones that, you know, he had like a less than $20 million borrow on Brax and, and MIM. So, and I think around 10 million on inverse. So those ones are a lot easier to get out versus like, you know, Ave he had a, I think at the peak, like maybe a $60 million borrow or, or $50 million borrow. So they kind of started fighting amongst each other. And, you know, why we were joking around earlier is because when this was like live happening, I think like Jan and I were, you know, saying this isn't going to be a big deal. Like people were comparing it to Luna, but in reality, like this is on the scale of like tens of millions with, you know, billions of dollars of, of equity at risk across all these different DeFi protocols. And a lot of these founders are pretty flush with cash. And, you know, you have entities like Justin Sun, who's like billions of dollars on chain to, to kind of like make entities. a deal with, you know, he's an entity now. Is over there. Cedrus is over there. I was not freaking out. I'm trying to sit but, here. He I'm wasn't freaking to, out. He's fire there, sailing everything. Is that a speaker? I'm just <laughs> trying to think of like... With Bud posting on Twitter from his napper ganger. All <laughs> no, I was just trying to think like, what's the worst possible outcome here? And it was pretty clear to me that it was like Ave lenders and maybe stakers take a hit and that was it. And so even in the worst case, like it's not like... 
uh, if you don't have like any exposure to that, I guess it's like not something. Why did you think? I think, yeah, you still thought the risk was, and I, and I did too, like uh, higher than these guys are giving you credit for at the time, like higher than a, than a nothing burger. And like, what was it that kind of made you think that? Well, like these guys are thinking about it from a very rational point of view. And when things start to collapse, there is no rationality in markets. And so if, if like you got like the hacker right away, he started selling curve and i know he didn't have a big amount he has like four million or something but then everybody else starts curve. like following this and then everybody else starts like selling curve yes like a buyer is going to come in at some point for that but there's no reason to like jump in front of that knife when the market is like panicking in the situation but, but i think our point is there was a reason because you have literally like half of DeFi intertwined into this yeah but they can still it's only a few million dollars, like, you know, to actually like make this problem go away. And we saw the max panic, like when it's not a few we million dollars, six, it's like well, per person, it's like per, 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 per entity across the space, you know, everyone chipped in, Ave threw in a couple mil, everyone started buying a little bit, your excellence, <laughs> threw in a bunch. Yeah. So, but basically what happened is like, as soon as this frax interest rate started going up from 10 to 130%, people started freaking out and extrapolating, okay, like in three days, this is going to be a 10,000%. This guy's going to be liquidated. It's going to cause a huge cascade. I think like 12 AM curve had dropped from like 60 cents to 50 cents, like max panic. The frax rate was going up and funding on Binance annualized was negative 440%. So like when you talk about how much the market's panicking, right? People are paying 440% on an annualized basis to go short this thing that's already down 40% in two days. And like, that was like kind of peak fear when in reality, if you look, okay, like the immediate trigger to cause this liquidation cascade is the frax lend position. And in order for the interest rate to stop going up, it does only take a few million dollars, right? It only takes like five, like maybe like five, 6 million to either pay that down or have enough like utilization in the pool to to kind of like not have the rate exponentially increase and like hasaka tweeted it as well he's like curve founder <laughs> um you know locks up all his curve buys a 60 million dollar mansion in australia and then makes all of DeFi plunge protection team his position is uh next level genius so yeah all right i don't want to spend uh too much longer on this side of things but one of the things that the people were saying after this was just that this shows like how broken DeFi is and like we needed like backroom deals to, to save curve and like these money markets, the, the risk management sucks, the governance sucks. What are you guys' takes on this? I think re risk management has yeah, generally been poor. Like, I guess what's disappointing about this is that this literally happened to on Solana with Solend back in November where the Solend whale had like this massive borrow that made up a big portion of the protocol and and i mean people knew about this for a while and just kind of like let it just like didn't take it seriously i guess because listen like zero day exploits or exploits they're gonna they're gonna happen and nobody thought that curve like the idea that curve could be exploited was not really in the calculus for a lot of this and listen, if this exploit, like Stake ETH pool is on a different Viper compiler version, like what happens if, what happens if Stake ETH was on this compiler version too? It would have been probably a different story. It's like a massive pool. 
apologies for those wondering why everyone's laughing. Duncan, shitcoin scavenger, is sending hilarious memes to set us on the side, <laughs> as, he, as he tends to do. We should put the meme up so people can see it. Maybe you can describe it, Duncan, what you intended to convey with this with this meme. No, I don't think I can describe it correctly. I'm just making fun of Satyrus because of, you know, how worried he was over the situation. And Yeah, I don't think this is necessarily a failure of DeFi, right? I think part of what contributed to this is the, the borrow position that he had was overshadowed by the, the vast amount of TVL on Aave and these other protocols. And so it just didn't really seem as material of a risk. And then, you know, as, as markets kind of pulled back and, and, and TBL decreased, he only increased the amount of curve he was borrowing against. And, and so I think that, that that's part of what contributed to this specific risk being overlooked. And, and I think, you know, while you, I think what's, what's impressive is that, you know, in, in traditional markets in, in 08, you needed the Fed to come in and, and fix the problems of the banking system and, and therefore risk management, whereas, there is no Fed here, and and so this was a problem that was able to be solved internally, which I actually treat as as bullish and adds to kind of the resiliency uh, of the ecosystem, and and definitely something that I think people will learn from, and and I think you'll see a lot a lot of improvement across like the the risk parameter space when it comes to these lending markets. Yeah, I think people are thinking a lot more about like actual liquidity, and like they have these liquidity oracles that people are starting to take into account now. You know, taking into account what can actually be liquidated, uh, doing these like dynamic updates. I saw something yesterday where Mango, who got exploited <laughs> last year, someone deposited like a massive position of BSOL, and so they automatically adjusted like the LTV on that on that asset, taking into account like the on-chain liquidity. And so you'll see you'll see stuff like that. But that's cool. And I think, yeah, I think, go ahead. Can I, yeah. So basically like also curves it a unique situation, right? Cause like, as Jose said, like this started happening like three years ago where he started getting these borrows in line and then also curve tokenomics are, and we'll, we'll touch on that more, I think in a minute, but basically like they have a 40% allocation to the, the founding team members. And then there's also like a big token. So like basically Michael, the, the founder of Curve had about 25% of the total CRV supply, but you know, I think around 60% was locked, right? So it makes him have this like massive position relative to, to the liquidity. And yeah, what should have happened here is not necessarily like a failure on like a smart contract level or a DeFi level, but like this just wasn't properly managed over the course of the bull market, right? You know, Curve was trading at like, like upwards of $2 when the market was in a better state. And so him borrowing against that is an extremely low LTV. And the market, uh, like Ave, just didn't really adjust his position down for kind of the deterioration. And liquidity was, was a lot different, right? And the, yeah. that's the thing, yeah. Ave V3 already kind of solves this with uh, like deposit caps and the isolated pools. Like everyone who was on Ave V2 kind of had like themselves to blame for this, for not just like upgrading, you know, migrating pools over to Ave V3, which has been possible for for over a year. And I think also like Gauntlet and, and some of like these risk orgs had been pointing this out for a while too. It had been discussed in governance. Like, I don't know, I think overall it was a pretty good showing for the for the money markets and, and risk protocols, especially when you compare it with what happened in 2022, where 
we were scrambling around for months wondering which of the centralized lenders were just zombies that had blown up but weren't telling anyone yeah right yeah that's another great point. this is all handled very quickly and, and transparently and i think just one last point that like kind of added fuel to the fire on, on the FUD just on the liquidity point is like one of the pools that was effective was actually like the curve liquidity during the hack so like the on-chain liquidity for CRV was really bad. And I think like a lot of people like spreading FUD, like Ceteris were like posting these screenshots of like this terrible curve liquidity. It's like, oh, if like $5 million worth of curve is sold on chain, like it's going to wick down to 20 cents. But in reality, like, you know, the Binance pair had like hundreds of millions of dollars on the perp, at least in trading volume when this was happening. And there's a lot more liquidity kind of not really seen directly on chain. So I think that was like another big thing that, that contributed to the FUD. But it's interesting, like, how lending protocols in the future are going to move forward, balancing, okay, like on-chain liquidity with sex liquidity and like managing those positions in real time as market conditions change. Because obviously like Michael was, you know, depositing more curve and borrowing against it as it went up. And then, you know, we had Bitcoin draw down from 70,000 to 15,000. Some of these alts draw down much harder. So like, obviously that's an insane drawdown. Even if you were like levered at like a five, 10% LTV at the top, that could end up being pr pretty risky as as the market draws down like 60 70 percent yeah cool i think we can move on to vcrv so this is something that we have some strong takes on in here i think it's it's a model that jan and i are are pretty bullish on and i think it, it played a pretty important role in why curve why so many different players and DAOs and projects were actually incentivized to save curve in a way that I think they wouldn't be were it not for the token model. So I think Jan, maybe you start by like introducing like the high level of how VCRV works and why you like it as a token model. And and then I think Ceteris and Duncan are gonna jump in and, and flood it. Yeah. So like there's a lot of nuance to to the to the model. So there's no need to kind of go into that that detail, but just at a high level, the idea is you lock up curve for a varying amount of time, you know, as, as far as four years. And, and the longer you lock, the more voting weight you have. And what you're voting on is what pools the future CRV emissions go to. So the idea is the more you own, the more you can incentivize liquidity or, or yields to a particular pool. And, and there's protocols that are very reliant on it in a, in a first degree manner where they're like, like fracks, where they own a bunch and are, and are adding liquidity and directing emissions to their stable coin pool to increase the, the liquidity there. And then there's kind of like the second order owners like a convex, which are more so kind of monetizing the ability to direct those emissions. And so what the, what, what this creates is, is a lot of long-term alignment, which is ultimately what you really want with a lot of these protocols. So I think one major criticism that's, that's often, I think there, there's, there are easy ways to criticize VECRV or VE models in general, but I, I think the appropriate lens to think through them is not on an absolute basis, but relative to what else exists. And I think that's kind of the big mistake that a lot of critics make when it comes to this is, you know, we're, we're comparing this to existing models rather than, you know, what are the ultimate flaws with this model? And, and I, I agree there are ways that this can be improved, but the point is, you know, the goal with ownership and, and, in, in these tokens and the ability to direct these emissions is that you want to give the most to the people with the most long-term alignment because naturally they're going to be as incentivized 
to ensure that everything goes as well as possible for this protocol. And, and I think this was evidence of that, right? If, if you had a scenario where it was just like a pure ex sushi model where you stake and you just get fees, everyone would have abandoned it. It would have been, you know, the second there would have been concern, there would have been a mass run for the doors and, and the, the person who ran first would win and everyone else would be stuck holding the bag. And I think the scenario would have played out a lot more differently. And, and so, whereas here you have these protocols that effectively own a lot of this governance token and their value comes from the future emission of that token. And so it's in their best interest to ensure that 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 curve survives because the value of of the amount that they can direct is a lot more than the cost that they'll have to pay to make sure that they can still that this survives right and that was always kind of the the calculus was you have these protocols which have massive bags massive vested interests both in the present and in the future of this surviving and so for them it's just a, a small kind of expense to pay to ensure the the kind of survival of this protocol and so that's a product of the ve design where these guys are locked for typically two, three, four years and are are vested and, and have a best interest in, in, in really ensuring this goes well. Yeah, I think that's definitely probably too much credit to give to this situation. Like, I don't think, I think if there was no V, this still would have been fine. Like, if you look at this, so basically what we didn't touch on is how Michael actually ended up, like the situation's fine now. He, I think everyone agrees on this call, he's gonna be fine. There's not gonna be any bad debt. Basically what he did was when Curve was trading between like 50 to 60 cents, is he was he sold a bunch OTC to like kind of different parties. Some of them, which which you know Jan mentioned, had this long term interest in in Curve, but a lot of them I don't think would have fall, fallen into that like VCRV or like CVX bucket where they can can direct future emissions. I think a lot of them were more related to you know just like general health of DeFi. Like you still had all the lending protocols like Ave, Frax. Frax was double incentivized because like they have a stable coin and they own a lot of convex and curve, but they had the Frax lend that was at risk and also abracadabra and inverse. So I still think even without the V curve, especially when you look at the list of OTC bidders, they, he would have been able to get out of the situation. Maybe it wouldn't have been as guaranteed, you know, definitely curve convex and Frax specifically, those three were really on the hook if, if curve were to go down. So those three were extremely incentivized, but I still think, it would have been fine in, in a more broad sense. That's probably giving it a, a bit too much credit in my view. And anyways, he ended up selling around 20 to 30 million US. And just in response to that, I think just, just what, sorry, like, paid on the death and I, I, yeah, I, I agree I think that, like that you know, it, it might've still played out in a similar way, but I think you can't change the VE model and then only think of this event in a silo because Without this VE model, I think you'd have a lot less of this sticky liquidity in the first place, right? And so if the liquidity itself to begin with is a lot more fluid, there's also less incentive in order to kind of save this uh, protocol in general, right? If, if, if VE wasn't around, I think there would be more curved competitors because the liquidity would be more fluid. And so you have to kind of incorporate that into the thought process of saving it. And and You're and I think like the VE makes it more worth to save, right? Because there would be less copycats because too many people are bought into the curve because of the VE model. At, at the end of the day, though, like these protocols still need another buyer to value curve because even someone like Yearn, who who did an OTC deal here to like help save it, they hey, need curve to work because they sell curve. Like yes, they have their curve block token, but a lot of their protocols are farming curve, right? And so 
That's like where I with the so with the VE locking model, I agree to an extent that it makes people long term aligned to the because they have like this sunk cost and they have put so much into the protocol. But I don't think it makes people make decisions with like a long term viewpoint because a, a four year lock token is is essentially like perpetually relocked, which means that it's it like its present value is essentially zero. And so what that does is it gets a voter to vote for pools and emissions that is going to give them like the maximum amount of value today, right? And so they don't actually vote on pools on what is going to be like the best long-term interest of the protocol. They're voting on how can they get as much of like the curve back and that sunk cost as quickly as possible. And so that's where I think the long-term alignment doesn't necessarily add up in the VE curve model. But yeah, I mean, listen, what, there's, there's a whole ecosystem. What, like, what, like what they're, I guess, what would be incentivize them to like, why is directing emissions to their own pool different than like what's best for, for the health of the protocol. And also in case we, everyone's not like super clear, just like one more time. So you take curve, you can lock it for up to four years. The longer you get the lock, the higher, like boost percentage you get in terms of like your voting power and then your voting power determines the future emissions of curve so it's kind of like as cetera says you put on these these handcuffs where you're always incentivized to be locking for the four years and relocking for the four years so you get you know the maximum amount of voting power and the emissions go for a long time like another 20 30 years maybe even longer i, I can't exactly remember but like basically like essentially in our minds like forever the, the emissions go on so you just keep on directing rewards back to, to your pool. But I don't really understand your point, Ceteris, on, you know, directing emissions back to your own pool versus a pool that would be better for, for the health of the protocol. Well, it's not necessarily your, your own pool. Like for DAOs, it makes sense that they're going to vote for their own pools. Yeah, well, I guess there. taking the, or Ceteris, do you want to well, answer I mean, that specific thing or just? Yeah, I mean, I guess my point is like take two protocols that are coming to launch their like stable coin on curve. And one of them, it's obvious that it's like a pure shit coin, but they're paying a lot of incentives. And there's another one that is like legitimate project that you want to be integrated in curve for a long time. And like you are going to vote for probably the other one to, to instead of taking like the long-term view and then LPs might go to the other, another protocol in the meantime, and then you lose out on that like staple in curve over the long-term. And so that's kind of my point about that. I also think there are like bugs in the curve and like the, there's sort of problems with the current like VCRV status quo that aren't to do with the VCRV design, but are just like path dependent based on like what happened with Convex and stuff, like how much voting power Convex managed to accumulate with a single gauge and stuff like that. But ultimately the, the main reason I like the V token models and the reason I think it worked well here is because like most token models, like X Sushi, I guess is, is the good counter. Like you can just hold it as an investor and, and you have the same exact benefit as if you're an LP, as if you're, as if you're like a value add. X Sushi shit. Like yeah. you need to compare it to something well, actually good. Once upon a time, it wasn't shit. <laughs> I mean, the biggest problem with that was that is that is like, there's also no point in paying out all the rewards, in my opinion. Like, I don't think you should be paying out all the rewards, the stakers of a token. So the reason I like the V models in general is because 
they incentivize um, like participants in the protocol. They're like, you're more incentivized to hold it if you're a participant in the protocol than if you're just a random investor, right? Which is also why, like one of the things that I think kind of Duncan, you don't like about it. It is like not good to hold if you're just an investor. It naturally benefits LPs because as an LP, you get the boosties or it naturally benefits protocols because you can direct like especially for stablecoin protocols because you can direct the flow of incentives to your pools huh yeah i mean basically if you have if you're both an lp and you have like your curve locked you get a higher share of the emissions that go to that pool effectively which means that lps that also own curve are benefited over lps that don't have any curve right and like contrasting this to the to the X sushi model, which is like the unlocked version, it's like I think it's a lot better, like, and and you can kind of see it in the in the cap table effectively of Curve, where it's mainly owned by its LPs, which also means that liquidity is sticky, like Jan said, or it's owned by protocols who who want to own it to direct incentives to their to their pools. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so on the counter V Curve stuff, so I've written three reports on curve and convex like probably like 20 pages each i spent way too much of my life looking into this and way too many headaches because the system is like very circular ultimately so starting off i think curve has lost a ton of its value post terra and post eth withdrawals because basically like the beauty of curve like in like when the curve wars is a really big narrative and when convex was ripping and when when terra was around and maybe I'll just give a little bit of color on curve and, and convex if for those who don't know. So basically, like we talked about curve and then this VE curve, which is basically where you lock it for a certain amount of years. Convex is a protocol that launched where it basically said, okay, if you deposit your your LP, so your like stablecoin liquidity pool, like you know, USD, USDT, DAI pool in curve or in convex, we will then Put it into curve, give you the max boosties, which is what Jose was talking about, where if you hold a certain amount of V curve, then you can get up to 2.5 times in emissions. So we'll do that for you. And then we'll also give you like your, your, your liquid rewards and we'll relock. We'll give you your rewards in a liquid staking derivative token, which is like CVX CRV. And we'll relock like all of, all of the CRV plus like a, a fee we take. So basically they kind of gamed the, the curve system and ended up like getting a ton of TVL, basically like all of deposits and curve were, were through convex and they ended up getting around 50% of the VE curve supply, which basically then led to this where you could take the CVX and then like use that CVX to like control the underlying VE curve and, and direct emissions to your pool. So basically during Terra, when Terra was big, and like the algo stables were bigger, like Frac was still like 85% collateralized. And then you also had Lido pre uh, Steeth withdrawals. You had these three like pretty big protocols, especially Luna and, and Lido, literally is going maximum amount of money they could get into buying Curve or CVX or bribing CVX holders, which is basically, that's just the lingo, but it's basically paying CVX holders to, to direct emissions to, to their pools and for Terra, right? Like since there is no one-to-one -one US dollar backing, you had essentially an infinite bid from like, you know, a multi-billion dollar protocol to direct um, 
to direct uh, emissions to to their pool. And now that that's all gone, like there's no reason why you want infinite liquidity. And I think that it's basically lowered it. And also Steve or like ETH withdrawals are, are live. So there's no real reason you want infinite liquidity anymore. Like that is kind of gone. And so that yeah, I think stable is coins constantly launching, energy. like go is launching and like CRV USD and, and there's going to be more and more like stable coins launching like USDE and it's zero sum, right? Like you're, you want to have more liquidity compared to your competitors. So like the, the, you want to own a I know, share of supply. It's only it's only relative when it's an algo like USDC. Like you can just go fucking redeem it. You don't need billions of dollars of on-chain liquidity, right? You there there becomes a point where it's diminishing returns, right? Like for these smaller ones, you get a few percent of liquidity relative to your market cap, and you have a redemption mechanism that that works. Is like you just need enough liquidity to kind of handle day to day actions and a market maker to come in and arb the peg. Like there is no infinite bid anymore. I think the demand for curve is like completely destroyed after ETH withdrawals and and Terra going down unless there's going to be situations like that in the future. And I think like we're probably going to stay away from algo stables for a while, but yeah, I think that the demand is completely destroyed and that's just from the protocol point of view. But then from an investor point of view, it's like, why the hell would you lock up your tokens in crypto, like a hundred vol asset for four years? It makes zero sense. And that's the only way as a curve holder, you're participating in fees and bribes for future emissions. So like if you're bullish on curve, as a protocol, the best way to get exposure is through convex because that's a liquid token. Emissions are basically down and you essentially control a bunch of the curve future emissions. But I think like the investment case and the bull case for curve and convex is diminished incredibly because Luna, Lido and Frax are, are done like infinitely bidding. Yeah, I've always I've always looked at convex as kind of like evidence that the curve model is wrong. I see it as like value leakage from the curve token to another token that like didn't need to exist. Why would you why would you own curve if you could own convex? Especially that, after like yeah. that's true. But I think it's path dependent. Like I I don't think like there there are ways to avoid convex is happening, right? Like convex had the monopoly for a while and they managed to like get a bunch of, of curve supply. Like new protocols that implement the model can take measures for that for that not to happen. I think there's designs so, out there that Yeah, kind of so I guess that. it's and then you have multiple it, convexes. I guess it's like do you think like, has there been another one of these, like, long for your vote locking tokens? I know Velodrome has had some success success on Optimism. But, like, do you think Curve's success of this model is just the fact that it was first and it got all the mind share and it got so many protocols dependent on it? Or actually the token model? Because, like, I don't think someone can make, and I don't think someone can vampire Curve with the same token model either. Um, the, I'm saying, like, the, the, the main thing, with the V model, and yeah, there are other examples like Velodrome is one. Balancer, I think, has had like good success moving over to this model, and and mainly like what are you comparing it to? Um, That's and, the ultimate yeah, thing. You have your chance to show GMX. In, 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 okay, on. but yeah, but but why would you launch as a V token model now? Because like you don't have this infinite demand anymore. Like for for liquidity, it's just not there. I don't think anyone's going to be able to replicate the success that Curves had. It's very, I think, unique. I think you, if you launch a VE token today, I do not think it would do well. I think you'd be way better off going for some sort of soft lock or something. But there, like there have been VE models doing well, though, right? Like the, 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 there are what, like, what, what market cap is Vel, Velodrome? But Velodrome, you can still sell. You can still sell because you get like an NFT of your lock. So it's like semi-liquid. It's pretty liquid, but you could, you could theoretically sell. Velodrome is, what's the ticker? That's the, and Balancer, I guess, moved to a VE, to a VE model. 
I think the yeah. degree of the lock is also important. The, the longer the longer you make it, the more you skew towards being a a protocol acquired kind of token versus a user acquired token. Like four years, I think, is too long. Whereas, but it know, doesn't matter. It, it does. You get the infinite lock. It does. No, it doesn't. Yeah, because like, like it's, it's a lot. It's a lot easier to speculate on on a one and a or a one and a half year lock versus a four year lock, right? The concern is who locks for four years on an asset with this volatility, um, because you, you you can't realize positions or realize gains. And I think part of it, but even on the year lock, like the game theory is to keep on locking so your max voting power and you can keep on, or else you're just like. You're not like you, you have a massive sacrifice waiting for the one year unlock. If you wanted to implement something like that, you just have like the rage quit mechanic, which we've talked about it at length, where it's like, okay, you're locked for a year. If you want to unlock day one, like then there's some sort of like, right. I guess but like linear rage quit is an improvement where... to the V model. Yeah. So like you're still building on the V primitive and iterating on it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. But it's basically the soft lock. What I'm arguing for is a soft lock, which is just better. And the rage quit basically makes it a soft lock. Soft lock with penalties, which effectively is still like a. I mean, soft depends on the on the penalty, right? <laughs> like, it could be pretty hard depending on what, what you set the penalty at. I mean, I think we're splitting hairs here on the model. Uh, overall, I, I think, yeah, I, I was going to say most of us agree that like people who lock should probably have more upside and more say, but maybe maybe we don't. But but anyway, I think we can move on to to MMs here. So like the curve debate, I think brings brings us up to the four. You know, Duncan, you've obviously shown your pretty bearish curve and like curve and maybe balancer, arguably the last true remaining AMMs in the true sense of like automated, like four passive LPs. And trading volumes right now are down across the board, but like spot especially is down and has generally moved away from AMMs, right? It's increasingly dominated by intents. By like the one inches and cow swaps and obviously uniswap x as well of, of this world which which are kind of like just a front end for professional market makers and, and centralized exchange liquidity so do you guys think this is a one-way trend like are amms dead basically is the question i think for liquid tokens it's pretty clear and i think uniswap x is kind of an admission of this that they are going to start using fillers, which are essentially professional market makers to use this RFQ model where users will come in and they'll get this quote from a market maker who is essentially just using centralized exchanges and then who's going to fill them on the other side of the order. And then AMMs in this model are basically going to be used as like toxic exhaust for these fillers to basically just arbitrage all the time. And so I think like the, the, a big theme for me, CC was this whole move to off-chain execution, on-chain settlement. And it's not just something you assume with Uniswap. We see it everywhere. That's kind of like what intense is too, because I think users, they, they don't care about centralization when it comes to execution of like a trade they're making. They just want the best price but they still want the settlement guarantees of whatever layer they choose to like hold their assets on and like the self custody aspect of it. <clears throat> so it's just since price discovery occurs off chain for these liquid assets, AMMs are always going to be like slower and arbed against. And so, yeah. 
there is like a pretty clear trend for the liquid stuff that AMMs are kind of going to be going away. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely an uphill battle. You know, in, initially the whole value prop here was, you know, with an AMM, you're kind of bringing together two users, one that's providing liquidity and, and one that's looking to, to trade. And, and it's clear that, you know, the, the, the value on the liquidity side is certainly there, particularly in the absence of centralized exchanges, but the, the, the value prop on the, sorry, the value on, on the trading side is certainly there, but the value on the liquidity side is tough. You know, a model that we, we've been constructive on is the, is the kind of the curve V2 model. So I guess zooming out, you know, AMMs or automated market makers, I think what there's been a, a kind of a split where some are automated in the sense that you set it and forget it. And then others are, are very still manual, like a UNIV3, there's, you're not, it's not an automated market maker. It's the same kind of interaction from the trading perspective, from the LP, it's, it's effectively a, an order book. So I think, you know, trying to right at the expense or, or and, and in exchange for their inability to, to do a lot of this automated market making, right? The idea is I'm going to earn less because I have to do less. And so trying to kind of find models that, that potentially can provide that, that sweet spot, that middle ground where they're obviously not going to be getting the same level of yield as a professional doing this as a full-time job, but they can still earn yield on idle capital in a way that's not incre incredibly toxic is, is kind of the end goal. And so I think like Curve V2 is an interesting one. Basically what they kind of do is it's automated in the sense that you have concentrated liquidity that moves. So concentrated liquidity basically means there's, there's amplified liquidity around a certain point. XYK, the original was, was pretty spread out. So you had a lot of kind of useless liquidity on the tails and a lot less in the, in the middle around the, the kind of the mid price. So what V2 does is it basically amplifies around the mid price by taking an exponential moving average, which basically just means that it weights the most recent data, the, the heaviest around the ratio of the assets. So basically, you know, there's rarely price discovery on AMMs, which is effectively the issue that, that, that creates toxic flow. But the idea is as external prices move, the AMM can follow, but, and, and add a lot more liquidity. So the whole idea is it creates capital efficiency, right? The, the, the issue with a lot of these models is you can't get enough utility on this underlying capital without there being some type of leverage. And, and we can kind of go into how different models are, are offering leverage to some degree, but this is one of them, right? It's, it's able to, to concentrate the liquidity in one area such that you can generate a lot better trading execution with less underlying capital. And, and if you can do that, you can, it leads to higher yields. And so I, I like, you know, I think, you know, you've been on the forefront for a lot of this stuff um, in terms of kind of thinking about how these improvements can also happen on the MEV side aside from just like the, the protocol design side. Right. Like I think a good way to think about it is like an order book. If you think about like the depth of an order book, right. It's like a lot of liquidity and like lots of bids and asks are centered around the current trading price. And then as you get further away from the price, you know, the liquidity typically tends to, to thin out. And then when the price moves there, it, it obviously like adjusts 
dynamically with the price. So like in Univ2, like, you know, the bids would be all the same up to infinity and, and all the same like down to, to zero. Whereas something like Curve V2 would, would concentrate the bids in the ask closer to the mark price, similar to how like a market maker would operate. And it also has things like dynamic fees. So like as volatility increases, spreads widen, as volatility comes down, spreads come down. Yeah, so just a little bit of like, I think that's a good way to visualize it if people aren't familiar with kind of like the different AMM curves. Yeah, I think though for like the liquid pairs, it's not all doom and gloom. Like I think you're going to see a big shift to these MEV aware AMMs. And a good way to visualize this is skip. So they've made like these protocol owned builders, which essentially what it does is at the beginning of every block, there's an auction, which is they call top of block auction. And what that means is like the first transaction in that block is an auction. So if you consider like ETH is trading on a centralized exchange in a DEX and they're both at 2000, and then it goes up to like 2200 on a centralized exchange, that next block on a DEX is going to be very valuable because you can basically arbitrage it to death, right? And so how it works today in like Uniswap pools is, and for like context of readers, the CFI DeFi arbitrage, uh, not readers, listeners, <laughs> The CFI DeFi arbitrage is like a massive portion of MEV. It's a massive portion of the actual value that is extracted from blockchains. Some people make a joke that like Uniswap LPs are the security budget of Ethereum L1, which is kind of true. Um, and so what normally happens is a price changes on a centralized exchange. The stale prices on DEXs get arbitraged at the expense of LPs, and then like you go on. And that value is split between the arbitrager and the proposer and the LP kind of gets left holding the bag. But if you have like one of these top of block auctions, then when you have that same situation where price rises to like 2,200 on centralized exchange and it's still 2,000 on a DEX, you can actually auction off like the first transaction in that block. And so the LPs can actually now like capture that because arbitragers are going to bid that up pretty close to that $200 Delta. And so that's kind of where I see a lot of these designs going with Uniswap before they've added the ability to do hooks, which you'll, you'll see a lot of experimentation here. And that's kind of like the only way I think AMMs on liquid bears will stay around. And like to Jan's point, it doesn't have to be as efficient as professional market making, but it needs to be like kind of close. And I think doing these auctions um, especially if you get them at like a smart contract level, will will do a lot to help that because there there are benefits of having a lot of passive liquidity. You kind of saw like when Solana went down with the Alameda thing, their whole ecosystem was based on order book dexes, and when you lose a massive market maker on an order book dex, you lose like all of your TVL, which basically impacts the entire DeFi ecosystem. And so having retail liquidity provisioning across like an entire protocol is very valuable. And so I, I think it's something that we'll see more people trying to like figure out this next leg because this leg is clearly going to off-chain systems and RFQs and getting away from LPing on the liquid. Yeah, tokens. so to, to summarize, I guess yeah. what, what what both you guys are saying, it's like AMMs are gonna get better, right? They're gonna get they're gonna integrate with, with stuff that allows them to internalize MEV. The algorithms are gonna improve, they're gonna they're gonna be more concentrated, they're gonna implement variable fees, they're gonna have higher yield. 
And they already have kind of billions of dollars of liquidity sitting in these like pretty inefficient XYK pools. So if they can improve, so it seems like there's product market fit. And if they can improve, there'll still be a role for them, although it won't be like the decks, right? They're, they're, it won't be like where everything trades, but there's going to be a role for them, certainly on the long tail and potentially with with uh, with some of the more liquid assets too, if if they can like make these improvements. So yeah, I'm pretty, I'm like really bearish AMMs for, for most things. So I guess like the points you guys seem like everyone was aligned that they're bad for price discovery, right? And the way I explain this is like how they are a few lines of code going to compete with like jump and all the market makers on Binance or whatever, finding out the true price. Like they just can't, like, I don't care how complicated the code gets. Like you're just not going to be able to, to compete with that. And as you make the stuff more expensive, it gets more gas intensive. And when you're talking about, and like, yeah, and then just like gas is a whole other issue. And it's like, how quickly can you open and close orders? It's just like, yes, maybe they're going to be able to figure out some of the MEV stuff, but you're never going to be able to do as efficient price discovery as you can on an order book. I just think that's pretty impossible, but I think we, we all agree on that, but just, just clearing that up. The second one where I think we maybe don't agree on is I think it's terrible for a passive LP or an unsophisticated LP, even like on, on a yield adjusted basis, like in, in a risk adjusted basis against like other, other forms of yield. I still think it's really bad. So I don't disagree. We were talking about <laughs> what? I don't disagree with that. Okay. Well, well, yeah, I don't disagree with that either. Why you would do it is because to earn some yield. Yeah, but you. No, I was saying I think there's a world where if they keep improving and there's there's a market fit for a, a smaller amount of it, I, I think so. I, I don't think it's ever going to be the prime liquidity venue, and I don't think it's ever going to be better yield than what somebody can get with a professional market maker. But I, I do think there is a world where if the models continue to improve, you you can rationalize doing it. Basically, I'm not saying that. Yeah, I think right XYK, is, XYK is terrible, but like Curve V2, obviously, if you read our research report from, from a year ago, I think we were involved in it, is, is a lot better. And I think they're gonna, it's rational to, to say that they're going to get better still. But like also, like even Curve V2, right? Like a lot of those pools are incentivized, and I don't think it's a better yield than like if you're actually searching for yield on assets, I think you can definitely find it in, in a better way. Someone else leave the market making up. To, to the professionals and I guess like one of the models but I do agree with the long tail stuff I think like one of the great things about AMM is anyone can spin up a pool and raise capital and that's like one of the great things about crypto like it cuts like anyone with an idea can go out and raise money very quickly and try and pursue it and like build a community and all these things I think that's probably like the the greatest thing about crypto is like anyone anyone can make a hairless token or anyone can make a meme coin but if like i think that's probably like the the biggest use for amms i also think on the long tail fees like if you're going to do a uni v2 should be much higher and i think like a, i know it wasn't directly on the amm but even like unibot kind of showed this like with a five percent buy sell tax i thought that was a really good idea especially for like a completely bootstrap project i'm pretty sure or i've heard i don't know if that's true but 100 percent of the unibot tokens were deployed in the lp in the beginning so it was a fair launch like, i think that makes a lot of sense um, but but wait wait does does the tax go to LPs or token holders? I thought it went to token holders. Token holders. But I'm saying like something like that. But like if you're an LP, you are a token holder, so you know. Uh, yeah. Anyways. So I didn't own any of them, but I thought that was a clever idea, even though it kind of messed with me in the beginning because 80% of the revenue is from this fucking buy sell tax, and 
And so what happens when that goes to like centralized exchange liquidity? Right? Yeah, exactly. It's going to disappear, but it like bootstrapped them enough where they generated like a lot of runway and, and treasury for, for the team in the beginning, where it was a really good, you know, capital raising uh, tool for them. But okay, what I would prefer more, and I was like really big on GMX when, when it first launched on Arbitrum in September and wrote about it in, in October, November. But basically, I think relative, especially when you're talking about more liquid tokens, the Oracle model is like way better than AMMs because you're essentially pulling, you're letting like the market make, like the simplest way to explain it is you have a pool of capital. Let's say it's Bitcoin and USDC. You're letting the market makers figure out the correct price on Binance and then you're just copying it from them. And with things like GMX V2, like obviously for BTC, like GMX allows you to like ape in like $20 million long on, on leverage with only 10 bips fee, which is, is quite high, but no slippage. And then obviously the Oracle model, like kind of runs into more trouble as you get down like the, the liquidity curve. It's like, I couldn't be aping 20 million into some like, you know, low cap coin with no slippage, it would completely break the market and there'd be room for exploits and kind of the bad debt stuff we were talking about previously. But what's really interesting in GMX V2 is they're kind of like, I think improvements to the Oracle model are going to quickly outpace and be better for LPs than improvements to the AMM model, right? So that's the argument I'd make. I think the Oracle model is just superior in almost any way to the AMM model when you're talking about liquid coins. When you're talking about long tails, I think AMM is better. But for instance, in V2, they have, you know, longer tail coins. And how it works is Chainlink's developed a new high-speed Oracle, like in kind of synergy with GMX to basically go get the price so so a trader execute or a trader submits a trade with like cer certain slippage tolerances Chainlink goes pings the price from binance a bunch of other exchanges pulls it back also grabs the order book depth data and other like kind of i don't proxies. think we need to go into the go into the details of the of the design here i don't know like i i, I agree with you i i think i think people get your point and the oracle model is going to improve get faster quicker than amm algorithms and mev integrations are are, are going to get better chris john do you have a response to that yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly bullish on it as well. I think it, it points to a larger issue that I was kind of hinting at earlier with the idea that you really need leverage on the underlying but, capital okay. in order for there to be. But does yeah, that mean just like price discovery just moves off chain? Like literally, we just assume that Binance, like all the professional centralized market makers will find price discovery on a centralized exchange and then on chain just literally like copies those prices over and isn't that well, i think that uh, kind of i think it just goes to wherever there's the most liquidity yeah i think that, that like and, and so it's a function of that and then you know whatever that is and so whether it's an on-chain order book eventually on, a, on some highly performing chain or something off chain like a like a centralized exchange yeah i guess i guess the, the question this gets down to is like Obviously, if you have an Oracle-based model, you'll never have price discovery there. And so is price discovery basically doomed to be off-chain? Is there anything? Because then if price discovery is always going to be off-chain, then I agree that you want to get the on-chain model or whatever the, you're using to basically get that as close as possible to the off-chain price. But I definitely think it's heading that way right now. It's pretty clearly heading that way where liquidity like wherever there's the most liquidity is going to be where price discovery happens. I think that's kind of, can't really argue against that right now. Like maybe, I don't know, Cedros, you're big into Solana or some L2 or L3 or ZK chain can figure out how to do a performance order book on chain. 
and I think that could definitely be the future. But like as we've seen with even incumbents, just like on like Uniswap or Binance, like those are the, like not Binance wasn't a first mover, but it's kind of cemented its position at like 70, 80% market share. And it's just like very hard to move that rock. Obviously, Binance has its own regulatory issues right now, but even something like Uniswap, right? Like Uniswap has cemented itself on chain as as the biggest AMM, and it's very difficult to move that rock. So I think liquidity is going to be a big hurdle to overcome. But like maybe in a few years, if we figure out a performant on-chain order book, then it, it's possible. But I think definitely right now where stuff's going is, is the most liquidity for it's sure. Gonna so that's be... why I feel like oracles right now are way better. It's going to be, it's going to be tough to ever, I mean, just like, it's just basic, like physics. Like if you want to synchronize global state around the world versus some centralized exchange, have this global consensus, it's always going to be slower. Right. I think we're on chain order books, like some of the ones on Solana can, can thrive is just with like the composability of them, but that's kind of a different topic than being the place for price discovery. Uh, I think. In the end, though, like on the passive side, it, it all really boils down to kind of yield and, and exposure, right? So like, wh why would there be a a growth of, of like, what is this passive liquidity going to chase? It's it's going to be yield, but so, you know, kind of going with the Oracle model, it, you do have a different exposure, at least with current models where, you know, for example, like GLP was a, a zero to one innovation, but it, it didn't really address a lot of the concerns that allowed for this Oracle based liquidity to scale massively. Right. So the, the, the whole benefit is if you can have an underlying pool of, of capital that everyone is trading against with GLP, you're borrowing from it and, and you have imbalance issues. And that's why you saw it, you know, massively. It, it gained a lot of momentum when it launched over the in, in 2022 summer because that was a massive bear market where market participants naturally skew long and, and they get destroyed and chop. And, and that's kind of what that environment was. Then you saw GLP participants get get demolished in 2023 when it was up only because, again, everyone skews long. And so they kind of gave up a lot of the profits that, that they that they previously had. And so what that shows is they're like what you need both to address this this kind of counterparty issue where you know, you're the pool that people trade against. You, if, you, if you can balance that pool, you can actually scale the liquidity a lot better. Whereas, you know, if, if you have 40 million of longs and 20 million of shorts, the pool is exposed to a 20 million long position. But if you have, you know, 40 million in both, the pool isn't really exposed to anything and you can allow for there to be more int open interest built up against that same underlying pool of capital. And, and so, that, that's kind of you know what we're seeing some of these models shift to. Everyone agree that MMs are really good for the long tail, right? AKA like not the majors, but we're also seeing an increasing trend of like long tail tokens to some extent, like the, the likes of like Sui, Aptos, uh, Worldcoin, and and others like do these coordinated launches on Binance, right? With with the same playbook where you release very little of the float. A lot of it is controlled by market makers, and then you have these games being played, which which kind of guarantee you like a lot of volume on launch and also like a pretty high FDV. And I think it's kind of hard to argue that this hasn't been, from the perspective of the project, not necessarily the the, the community, but the project, a really successful like launch strategy, right? Like you people anchor to this higher FDV, you have a lot of volume, 
it looks like a, a, a real vowel, even if it goes down from there, then it looks cheap at half, which is still an incredibly high vowel. And I think we've seen projects that go this route generally attract much higher flow diluted valuations than those who launch like on chain on an AMM. So like, yeah, what do you guys think of that? Yeah, no, it's, <clears throat> I mean, yeah. it works. People are going to keep doing it. I mean, yeah, basically it works. Like it, we haven't really seen one that hasn't been successful yet. You kind of just restrict volume to a small amount of supply. Uh, it's kind of like we saw Aptos go from like to like $18 earlier in the year. You get these like short-term gains to kind of spur up interest, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's obviously not an ideal model for someone that wants to like actually get into the project. You have no opportunity to, to buy tokens at like a decent price. Using the finance launches being better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the playbook, right? We've, like I, we've seen it time and time again. You need, you, you have to get into the most users. You have massively incentivized market makers with with strikes that 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 you know make them a lot of money when these prices are hit. You need to kind of anchor public perception to a high watermark number, and then you get memes created around it, like even Aptos. Like you had, you know, I know, uh, what do you call it? Like Upbit was really driving a lot of the price. And apparently the meme there was APT for like apartment where like this thing would pump enough that you can just buy yourself an apartment. Just like silly stuff like that ends up driving so much of the, the volume and, and the value, which is unfortunately the playbook that, that really works. Yeah, I think it's important to consider it like, who like benefits from this. So obviously this is like mash. I think it's extremely predatory from the teams who do it, but like, obviously if they're going to use it as a distribution and like capital raising mechanism, it makes a lot of sense from their point of view. But like the playbook essentially is like you launch the few percent float, you know, you have market makers who are incentivized to keep the price extremely high. Like we saw at WorldCoin launch at like a 32 billion FTV, which is, which is massive. And you know, all of the points that, that you guys have already said, but basically who ends up holding the bag here is retail. So that's why I think like almost there should be, I don't want to say like regulation around the amount of float that can launch, but like just like accepted like number, like amount of float that, that tokens need uh, to be launched. And I think in the long term, like maybe in the short term, this is beneficial for these projects. And I know like you guys are talking about how optimism and Arbitrum did it and they, you know, are still successful, but they have like, you know, pretty, really strong market positions. When you talk about something like Aptos or, or WorldCoin, like obviously I don't know the future of WorldCoin, but like something like Aptos doing it, I think it's extremely like predatory. And we saw this on Solana where in the long term, I think it can really wreck you because like all of the Solana eco coins follow this playbook where essentially they would launch with like one to 3% float, extremely high FTV, way overinflated. The VCs would go and short the perps and just like collect a ton of money and everyone. And like the only people who were better off were the VCs and the team and basically all retail got screwed. And those projects are now like extremely tainted and any project who does that, I feel like long-term unless they really deliver on and like actually fill into that valuation kind of gets yeah it also depends uh, on the degree of that and, like and i think that, like, a three percent is is certainly obviously like going to be predatory but i think you know if you're doing low double digits like aptos i think is around 20 percent circulating 
which is is you know considerably less predatory and and I think it gives people more confidence in this being a more realistic price. Obviously, I'm not like bullish on the price of Aptos from here, but I, I think it's there's a degree to to, to the to like the, the the scamminess of the circulating supply, right? Like if, if you're doing low single digits, that's just tough to justify any kind of real valuation there. But I, I you know, the the counter is that you know the projects that haven't done it, and as I mentioned, some others that like that have certainly underperformed when. Yeah, but I think it's a, the fundamentals play a big role, right? Like we talked about this before, like I know I keep on bringing up GMX. I think it's a good example for, for a lot of these things that was done right, like on chain, but like they launched, I think they only raised 250K and they launched a basically like a one, $2 million market cap and they were the best performing coin in 2022, got all the way up to like over a billion dollar market cap because they had a product that that worked, returned cash flows to, to holders or, or value accrual to holders in some form. And, you know, it filled into that very nicely. It didn't have the Binance Launchpad. I think the Binance Launchpad makes a lot of sense if you need like really big distribution because you're like an L1 or something and you want to raise a ton of money. But like, I don't really know if it's the play for everyone and also not everyone can do it, right? Like you're talking about a small subset of extremely well-funded teams that like have the relationships to to, if, to launch, and I don't think your I guess investors are better off. If if finance, like, if like on chain like AMMs and and uh, and on chain solutions eventually had the same reach and distribution that centralized exchanges have, which I, I get is, is is a big assumption, but like uh, yeah, I think we're we're all in this because we think that will someday happen. Do you think you could recreate the same? Like, do you think launching on an AMM, because, you know, you said AMMs are good for the long tail of tokens. Do you think launching on an AMM could ever, like, rival what's done with a, as in, so on an AMM, and I mean with no, like, private market maker deals. So literally just public kind of launch, like public yield farming incentives. Could you recreate, like, the, the impact of, of a launch on a centralized exchange with uh, centralized market makers? Not to the same degree. I think you can, I, I, what, what helps if you're trying to launch with an, via AMM is if you have a lot of protocol owned liquidity and, and they're listing it, right? And so you have these different LBP type bootstrapping mechanisms that can raise some capital and allow the protocols to then seed liquidity naturally because then you have a scenario where they as LPs aren't really concerned about, you know, the underperformance of a buy and hold they're, the main value prop for them is to provide deep liquidity on chain early on at reasonable prices and, and to let you know early participants buy in. And so it, it's it's the mismatch where the LPs don't care about getting the best liquidity providing experience. They're just trying to actually provide liquidity. And, and so that, that happens when it's the protocol itself kind of launching that liquidity. I think in those scenarios, it definitely makes sense. I mean, realistically, the safest way to launch an L1 is an ICO. Like the fairest way, not safest. Like, and if we end, like, I mean, how would you do the? You're not going to do yeah, something like Sumir Aptos on an AMM on Ethereum or something. It's yeah, not, yeah, no, I, I agree. That's what I mean. Like things that need distribution, I think it makes a lot of sense to do on a sec. I need so like a bridge. Like AMMs, you still have a lot of, as you mentioned, like the GMXs of this world, the 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 balls, the the like a lot of tokens are, are still finding. <laughs> price discovery on chain but like if it's it's only useful for long tail and for long tail it doesn't have 
big backers and uh, who can, can kind of get them on Binance. And then even that, that long tail, once it hits a certain threshold, ends up moving price discovery to centralized exchanges, you know, like what's happened to GMX even to, to Binance. Like, doesn't that leave a very small TAM for, for AMMs? Yeah, I think it's definitely smaller because obviously these bigger pairs are getting way more trading volume. But I think it's an, it's an extremely important tool to facilitate like crypto, right? Like GMX thing is, I keep on going back to it, but it's like, you know, two guys started it and it's now a billion dollar protocol. Like they didn't, they raised like 250K on chain and they launched it and they bootstrapped it from like the ground, no VC funding, nothing into a billion dollar protocol. And I think that's like literally like the dream, like <laughs> for, for like crypto and like, you know, optimal case scenario, you have an idea for a protocol or something, you raise a little bit of money on chain, you deploy it, and you have, you know, something that aligns, you know, your LPs, your investors, your your users, or, you know, however the, the product is structured. And crypto is like a really good distribution and fundraising mechanism and also like awareness mechanism and like a way to kind of like account for value. And that's like the real, like, yeah, but, importance yeah. of AMMs in, in my no, but like GMX relies on off-chain infrastructure. So that was a point. I know, but it's like, that's not like, I'm not talking about the actual protocol. I'm just talking about the idea of like, you know, you can have, like me and you, Ceteris, could go, if we knew how to code, we could go out and, and build a project and deploy it and raise money. And, you know, it could be something big, like one, one day. And like, that's just really not feasible without crypto and this, you know, AMM structure, especially like, you know, working with people online that you don't know, having different legal contracts in different countries, like, you know, you can have it, your equity split in a smart contract. Like there's so many benefits for small, I guess, like small businesses or small protocols to like bootstrap with crypto. And that I think is like extremely value for AMMs, but like, I never think they're going to be the main place for, for liquidity. So I definitely don't want to understate the importance of them. Yeah, I think we'll see. We'll see. It, we're going to this off-chain model, but people will 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 start to see more of these. As I said, like MEP aware, AMMs kind of come back, and so I'll be keeping an eye on those. And then, of course, in a, if any order books, <clears throat> any like on-chain order books, which is mostly Solana right now. Yeah, it's hard to see like pure price discovery though on the most liquid assets being on chain anytime soon. Cool. Well, we've been going for a while. Ended on somewhat of an inspiring note that at least AMMs can, can facilitate long tail. Yeah, did you like my speech? Huh? This is freedom. Freedom. <laughs> yeah, it's just Gensler would kind of disagree with you there. Uh, you know, it's a global of... technology. Gensler can't rule the world. Yeah. He can try, it, it seems like. But uh, but yeah, like, I agree. I do think, for me, AMMs are going to keep improving and they're going to compete with other passive, like, yield sources on the LP side, I think. I, I don't know, I think a world where only professional market makers use order books and then all retailers just, like, lending to them on, on Maple or something or on, on, on money markets, it's kind of, like, pretty depressing. And I hope there's like, yeah. But you could do that in an on-chain way, right? Like if there's a performant on-chain order book and then you have Maple or whatever lending to these people and you can like watch the wallets and like there's some sort of clawback if they start to fall into liquidation, like you can give them up to like 10x leverage or something. That's doable on-chain in the future. Yeah, yeah. Just the point of yield though, there's going to be a lot more yield opportunities coming up, especially with like the LST narrative, the restaking narrative. And that's like single-sided 
yield, right? And that's at the end of the day what people want. So I think AMMs also have a bit of a headwind from that aspect. That, that there's going to be a lot more. Yeah, there's going to be a lot more like, like when people want yield, they want to keep accumulating the same asset. They don't want to be taking this price. Well, that's the other thing, right? It's 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 yield on on it's yield, but it it really varies depending on what you prefer your underlying to be. So like, you know, you can, the yield you can, you want to justify on a volatile asset versus the yield you want to justify on stables that, you know, if you sit in them long enough where you're the counterparty to either trading or gambling, you will win over a long enough period. And so I think that's the, the other element, right? It's, it's, are you getting yield on a volatile basket or a stable one? And oftentimes like yield on a volatile basket is just going to be, is, is kind of, you know, not super relevant because the volatility will, will dwarf the, the yield you're getting anyways. Yeah. And I definitely think that, that on the yield conversation, it's super important where we are in the market right now. It's like things are pretty slow. Trading volumes are really down. Like, whereas, you know, like just like the yield, the, the matrix of yield opportunities, et cetera, something is going to change drastically once the market is like more back and, and more in full swing. And like the trading yields are going to go up a lot. And like a lot of these like staking yields, right? Like ETH, like a lot, like a massive portion of the staking yield is fixed, right? And actually goes down as more ETH staked. A small amount is to do with fees. But like when you're talking about volumes 10xing, right? You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the yield that Jan's talking about, about like stable denominated yield or gambling denominated yield where like volume's way up. And yeah, yeah a lot of that will go back to stakers still though. A lot of that ends up as MEV, which goes back to stakers too though. Not not with the Oracle model. All right. All right, guys. This was this was an awesome conversation. Really appreciate everyone tuning in to the first episode of the Hive Mind. Let us know what you think in the in the comments or, or on Twitter. And I think we're gonna be doing these every two weeks or whenever we have something to talk about. And yeah, hope you enjoyed.